Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Vicky Vella. Vicky is a retired associate specialist in emergency medicine and has worked in A&E for 30 years. Vicky is passionate about teaching healthcare professionals about eating disorders and so joins us today to discuss their experience of eating disorders in A&E and their involvement in the new eating disorder guidance, MEAD, which stands for Medical Emergencies in Eating Disorders. Hello Vicky. Hello, hi, thank you for having me on. No, thank you for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. On this lovely sunny day. Good, good. I know I just went outside. I have been stuck working inside all day and I just went outside. It's like, wow, it's actually so hot. I'm like here in my jogging bottoms and a jumper and it's so warm outside. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very hot today. Lovely. Yeah, it is. I might have to go outside once we've done this and actually get some (laughs) fresh air. Um, so thank you so much for joining me. I'm, I'm really excited to speak to you, I think, with your experience and also, you know, the Mead guidelines is quite a relevant thing at the moment with it only just having come out. Um, so I wondered if you wanted to start um, to kind of speak about where your passion for teaching doctors about anorexia and other eating disorders came from. OK, so I was um, I have to be quite honest and say I knew very little about anorexia and eating disorders um it i didn't really think it was it's not that i didn't i actively didn't think it was an a and e thing it's not something that ever just crossed my mind as something i needed to know about um probably because i hadn't really had much teaching about it um Mm. i can't it's hard to think back as far as medical school but i don't think i had a lot of teaching about it at medical school and certainly as a postgraduate, none at all. Um, And then one of my daughters developed anorexia. And I think because I uh, didn't know that much about it, and probably as a reflection of the fact that I didn't know that much about it, I probably didn't act on it as quickly as I should. Because to be honest, once we were in it, I had no idea that it was such a terrible, terrible um, illness to have. Um, so yeah, so she became ill and of course, as parents and in particular doctors tend to do, you try and research the illness as much as you possibly can to find out, uh, all about it. Uh, I think the doctors are, are very, very good at doing that, but I think probably most parents of those with eating disorders have to do that anyway, because they get so little information given from them, or certainly back then. Um, we're talking about 2015, um, get so little information from the eating disorder professionals that you've got no choice really but to find out as much about it as you can, um, just to know how to deal with it and try and understand it. Um, And so, yeah, so because of my experience, I sort of reckoned that if I didn't know very much about it, then probably there were a whole load of other doctors that had never really been taught about it and didn't know very much about it. And so um, I asked if I could do a a talk, just a short talk. It was supposed to be 20 minutes, but it actually grew into about 50 minutes um, on a GP paediatric study day that they were doing at the Mm. hospital. And they said, yeah, you can do it. And I, I did my bit um and had so much feedback afterwards people emailing me people coming up to me afterwards people crying in the audience at the end of it um that i thought actually this is the right thing to be doing um you know i'm teaching all these gps and gp trainees that were there today have all learned something they possibly didn't know or hadn't realized that it was all quite as bad as it it was um and that spurred me on then so i slowly started doing more and more and now i do an awful lot of teaching about it mm. um and i'm 
from that teaching, I'm very well aware that most doctors who aren't eating disorder specialists have very little knowledge of it, um, of eating yeah. disorders. Yeah. So I so, carry on. <laughs> Which is fantastic that you do. So is the training that you do, is that for, for GPs, sorry, or is it also for people in like emergency departments? Oh, I, I do it for all sorts, to be honest. Um, it started off for those GPs, but now in, um, certainly in Worcestershire, I've done it for the last, oh, I don't know, three or four or five years for all the foundation doctors, foundation year ones, foundation year twos, GP oh. trainees, um, for, um, Dietitians, I've, I've done it for dietitians mm. in Worcestershire and also um, a group of dietitians in a department in Cheshire, I think it was, got in touch with me. So I did one for them. I've done them for paediatricians. I've done them for physicians. I, I, anybody, anybody I can grab that I think will um, come across people with eating disorders, which is actually most doctors yeah. in most specialties. Um, done it for medical sort of gastroenterology registrars and my my current mission is to get through to obs and gynae doctors so i've just oh. recorded a video for our local obs and gynae department the midwives for them to learn a bit about it and i'm trying to um trying to get some contact with the royal college of obstetricians and gynecologists to do something there because they have nothing on their website at all mm. about eating disorders in pregnancy yeah uh, yeah well that sounds amazing it sounds i think you don't well i mean we should but um i think you don't quite realize that anybody in a medical setting could be somebody that um could spot an eating disorder like i recently started thinking about dentists and how you know especially in bulimia they could mm. be the ones to acknowledge the changes in your teeth um mm. are there specific things in your training that you that you say to people like these are the signs to look out for or does it vary um, in the profession yes and actually it's not the signs of the signs to look out for um what I try and do more of is tell them about the side of eating disorders that they're not going to get from books, from standard textbooks. So there's no point, I don't think, in me standing up, giving them a load of signs of symptoms of how to spot somebody with an eating disorder, because mm -hmm. they can read that in a book. Um, what I try and do is, or what I do do, is tell them more about um, what what's going on in the in the mind of somebody with an eating disorder and how they're being controlled by the you know it's not them being in control they're being controlled by an eating disorder and they're not choosing to be like this and um, and that because I you know it probably isn't a very good thing to say but I think a lot of medical doctors who don't know much about eating disorders particularly when people with anorexia are on in acute medical beds I find them really challenging you know they don't particularly um they're not particularly keen on admitting people because they think one they're going to be there for ages and they might see them as challenging and a bit manipulative and a bit argumentative and difficult and can't understand why they're refusing this that and the other and um just think that they're they're really difficult so what i try and do is tell them that it's not actually the the person that they're not liking it's the eating disorder that they're not liking and inside that really challenging perhaps slightly difficult patient is actually just a really normal person that just wants help so those are the lines that i sort of go along in my teaching to try and change attitudes rather than teach them what an eating disorder is although i do do a bit of that i do a bit of an introduction on that um and i do go through the sort of risk assessment for the what was marzipan but is now mead guidelines so that um they know all the different 
tests to do before just discharging somebody from an emergency department because they look all right. Um, so going through what the high risk things are um, that would, um, you know, make, make them consider that the person might need admitting for refeeding in an acute hospital bed. Um, so I do go through that, but a lot of what I say is really around just what a terrible illness is and that people aren't choosing it um, and that there are just really, really normal people in there trying to get out. Um, I'm so relieved to hear that. Like, I honestly can't say how relieved because I did my dissertation for uh, my master's, which was Nathan Sodder's master's, um, looking at uh, a, like a skills-based workshop for paediatric nurses on an inpatient ward. And that was basically to, you know, design this workshop that, you know, like you're saying, would allow people to learn about eating disorders and stuff like that. And the a lot of the research that i read um on like pediatric nurses role in eating disorders said that the one of the biggest challenges was that pediatric nurses didn't want to work with people with eating disorders because they were seen as you know manipulative or they weren't grateful for the treatment or there were so many arguments and it was a, mm. a very tiring thing to work with because a lot of the time you know if you think about different mental health conditions you know people may or other like physical health conditions people will come to the hospital and they want to get better whereas a lot of the time with people with eating mm. disorders they don't want to get better at the initial stages and it, it's mm. kind of the you have to really support somebody to to want to get better so the fact that you're mm. explaining to them you know it's not actually the person that you're you know have a dyslexia or whatever it, it's the eating disorder i think yeah that's just so fundamental and mm. i think that's something that's massively missed in in a lot of mm. training I do do training for nurses, actually, at the um, because they're key, really, with the inpatients mm. on yep. uh, in the acute hospitals, because they're the ones really that should be ensuring that they're having their feeds on time and, you know, eating their food and having their drinks and all that, not not pacing and all that kind of thing. And um so I got in touch with the University of Worcester here and actually I, just a few weeks ago I did one, I did a three hour lecture um, <laughs> for their nursing students. But actually what, they, what they've what done there, which is fantastic, it, it was the second years of the general nursing, paediatric nursing and RMN nursing students because it's of relevance to all. Um, and so, you know, that's really good if I can get them because at least then when they go on the wards, they will have an understanding of it. And I always, I do do medical students as well. And um, as I said, the junior doctors, and I always say to them, you know, that you will now know probably 100% more about eating disorders now than your registrars or consultants will. So please have the courage to challenge them if you feel that they're not, um, sort of having the right attitude towards the patients on the ward or, you know, they wonder, I've heard of them being put on end of life pathways and, you know, being talked about within earshot, but behind their back about them and, and all this, and that hopefully they will have the courage to challenge that behaviour by their seniors because they've been taught about it. Um, and that's also why I get the dietitians because it's interesting how many people like the RMN nurses in Worcester, and I think probably in a lot of places have no training on eating disorders. And to me, that um, that's quite worrying because those RMNs will become mental health liaison staff and they'll see people in A&E who have perhaps overdosed or self-harmed or something like that. And if they don't have an understanding of eating disorders, they're not going to do proper assessments. And also when I just said, oh, and dietitians, is that although at, um, you know, at university, when they do their degree, they learn all about the nutritional side of it. Actually, they don't know anything about eating disorders per se. And, and to me, because they, they are the constants on the ward, whether it's a mm. medical or paediatric or gastro ward, 
they're the constants, you know, the junior doctors and, you know, a lot of the nurses will come and go. But they, if they've got a knowledge of it, should impress upon the staff how important it is that, you know, they do get their food at the right time and it's not kind of left for a couple of hours because somebody needs antibiotics and somebody needs something else. Mm. Their food is just as important to have on time as it is for somebody to have antibiotics on time. So the dietitians, I sort of think if they've got an understanding of what's going on, then they can um, impress upon the staff how important the nutritional side of it is as well. So everybody really needs to know don't they yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely got key, everybody's got key roles haven't they um mm -hmm. but i just think the more the more people know about it um you know the more chance there is of somebody challenging somebody on the ward who doesn't know about it mm. I was just thinking yeah. then, as you were kind of talking about um, with with the dietitians of like you know making sure that people get their food on time and stuff. Do you do you think it's possible for somebody to be treated with an eating disorder on like a general inpatient ward, or do you do you think because of the sort of nuances of it, it, it needs to be an eating disorder ward? Um. Well, it, unfortunately, it can't always be an eating disorder unit, can it? Mm. Because if somebody's physically unstable, they can't have um, drips and potassium replacement and and things like that done in a in an eating disorder unit. So, you know, there are certain things that really could only be done under observation on a on a medical ward um so so yeah but you know in an ideal world once they've been stabilized and their refeeding was started then they should be able to go into an eating disorder bed but i think mm -hmm. we all know <laughs> how short we are of those which is why you know they often get stuck on medical wards for weeks don't they or months sometimes where they try and find a bed for them but you know for as long as they're on a on a acute medical ward they're literally only being looked after in the sort of medical sense if you like but mm. no, nothing else is going on they're literally just being fed aren't they so yeah stabilized and i guess you know that highlights the importance like you were saying earlier of everybody knowing about eating disorders because I mean, I think sometimes if somebody is in a, you know, a medically unstable condition, the most important thing is to get them into a place where they are medically stable. And often, you know, people can't start the sort of therapeutic work un until mm. they're in that medically stable position. Um, mm. But I think it's, you know, critical that people are, are aware. I remember when I did my dissertation, um, things like taking, taking a, a patient to the toilet um or you know like you said earlier pacing and stuff like that is having that awareness of the compensatory behaviors as well mm. because mm. you know with a typical patient that might turn up into um to a and e or to be on an inpatient ward they might be able to have a few more freedoms but with somebody with an eating disorder in that that medically compromised mm. state they need to be monitored and supported constantly mm. Mm. yeah i mean you wouldn't you wouldn't expect them to get therapeutic um sort of treatment on an acute medical ward you know you don't expect them to start having mm -hmm. psychologists and family therapists and what have you going in there but um they should they should in an ideal world be having the right sort of support whilst they're having their their meal or their tube feed or whatever because they can become really, really distressed while they're having that. So to have somebody talking to them and supporting them in the correct way, you know, can make that a lot less difficult for them. And then, of course, making sure that they maybe don't just run to the bathroom straight afterwards and that, that kind of thing, you know. Um, so there is there is a need, even if they're not specialists in it, and it's not really a therapeutic thing, but just that knowing how to support them mm. um is is really important yeah yeah 
Yeah, definitely. Did you have much experience of kind of having people with eating disorders when you worked in A&E yourself or was it something that I guess maybe at the time you weren't that aware of? Well, once I knew about it, yes, plenty of experience. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I can't, I can't remember patients before I became, you know, more knowledgeable on this. I can't remember seeing many patients with it. Um, certainly not those, I think kind of got in my mind, maybe one or two that were really, really severely ill, um, who were easy just to admit to the medics. But I, I'm sort of worried that there might have been quite a few that I missed because I didn't pick up the signs maybe in people that had self-harmed or, you know, coming suicidal or something. Um, but certainly since knowing what I know now, um, I saw quite a few. Now, it may be that that's because people at work knew about it. So they say, oh, Vicky, you know, can you go and see, mm. you know, this is one for you to see. So it might be that I was getting more of them and others were getting fewer of them. Um, but also, I think maybe because I was asking the right questions, I was finding out more, finding mm. more of them, um, you know, and getting them to tell, tell me about it, whereas I wouldn't have done before. Um, so I really pushed, and I, I still don't think it is on the um, sort of checklist, but I really pushed for uh, questions about eating to be on our sort of checklist that we did with any mental health patients. So anybody that came in with, um, you know, self-harm, overdoses, suicidal thoughts, depression, you know, all of those things. Um, but they said, no, they wouldn't put it on. <laughs> so probably not everybody was asking, but I always would ask. And I found it amazing, actually, the number of people who might come in having self-harmed and they'll be telling me why and what's happened. And it's not anything at all eating disorder related. And then I might say at the end, oh, and um, how about your eating? And mm. it's amazing how many would then say, oh, well, yeah, this or that. I don't mm. want to say it out loud, really, yeah. because, you know, you don't want to trigger anybody but um you know oh actually i you know i do sometimes vomit after meals or i sometimes don't mm. eat very much um and it would all come out and then i'd put a big thing on the notes for the mental health liaison staff you know please please think about referral to the eating disorder service so i think i was finding them uh whereas mm. you know 10 years ago i probably wouldn't have done because i wouldn't have known to ask those questions was it as simple as you asking, you know, how, how are things with food or were there other questions that you asked? I'm just thinking if people are listening and, and maybe advice. Well, I, I think I would just start off with a very general, oh, and how's your eating, you know? And with the, with the younger patients, you would usually have a, have a parent or somebody in with them. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, very often they'd all just laugh and say, yes, not a problem at all. And then you wouldn't really have to ask more. But sometimes they might just say something, um, you know, like, oh, don't even eat very much or she's very picky with her food or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then you might just go, go in a bit more, you know, about whether they've always been like that, whether there's been a change and, um, you know, how they feel about food and that kind of thing just explore a bit more mm -hmm. but you know just a very general question to start with and i think you can tell from the way they answer it if mm. everything's fine and you don't really need to delve anymore yeah well i think that would be really useful advice for people if they are listening um because i think starting that conversation can be quite difficult um especially in you know such a high pressure environment if it's you know a simple thing that you can ask and then if people divulge some more information i think that will be very very handy so thank mm -hmm. you um mm -hmm. i wanted to ask you some questions about mead um okay. the new guidelines so um mm -hmm. for if people are listening and thinking, well, what on earth is mead? Um, do you mind just kind of giving an explanation? Yeah, so mead is a new incarnation 
of the master plan <laughs> guidelines. <laughs> so if people really don't know any of this stuff, so the uh, just as a little sort of backstory. So the marzipan guidelines stood for uh, management of the really sick patient with anorexia nervosa. Um, and these were some guidelines that were first written. They first were um, published in 2010, I think it was. Um, and this was done by a few sort of clinicians who realized that there was a real problem. Uh, with people with anorexia mainly dying on medical wards, basically through lack of knowledge of staff, uh, of non-eating disorder specialists. So the guidelines were put together for primarily for non-eating disorder specialists to refer to if they had somebody with anorexia to guide them, you know, how to assess them, uh, how to refeed them and all that kind of thing. Um, so the first... One was in 2010, and then in 2014, uh, junior marzipan came out, so that was for under 18s, and then um, might have been 2012, and then 2014, there was another incarnation of the adult one. Anyway, <laughs> um, so they decided a few years ago that a, a rewrite was necessary for a variety of reasons. Um, so I was very honoured, I suppose, to be asked to be the um, emergency medicine representative in the working group and also a carer representative. Mm -hmm. um, so we started working on it a few years ago, but then, of course, something happened and everything got pushed back. <laughs> um, so everybody's been working really, really hard in the last year to get it out. And it was finally published um, at the end of May second last week of May um, at an eating disorder faculty conference. Um, so, yeah, that's what MEAD is. So they changed the name to Managing, Emer Managing Emergencies in Eating Disorders. Um, and the name was changed for a couple of reasons. One, because in general, people with eating disorders didn't like the name marzipan which is understandable. Um, they ought to change the name of the scoff store score as well, really, shouldn't they? <laughs> <laughs> I think there's uh, quite a few of... um, <laughs> like acronyms that are food, and it's kind of it's yeah. funny that they're eating disorders. Mm. And, mm. Yeah. Well, I think if, probably if these things were initially all written by people who had eating disorders, they wouldn't have acronyms like that. No. But I guess people who haven't got eating disorders have I just thought, oh, yeah, that would be quite good to do it with food, but, you know, without really thinking <laughs> of the effect that might have on the, the people mm -hmm. they were trying to help. Um, yes, yeah, so it's changed to mead because the it's not just a reference to anorexia nervosa, so they've changed it to eating disorders so that it's not all about anorexia. Um, there are uh, There is guidance in there for... Um, bulimia nervosa as well not so much for binge eating disorder um but um yeah for bulimia and anorexia and the reference to others so mm. that's why the name's changed why is there not as much not so much for binge eating disorder is that because people don't come to a and e or i think so yeah i think that that's it because really what the whole point of the guideline is to try and prevent death mm -hmm. from people who are really ill with mainly anorexia nervosa those, those are the ones that we we hear about and they're all very tragic and nobody should really die from anorexia on a on a medical ward um but then obviously bulimia also has some uh potential to cause people to pre present to a and e you know if they get um low potassium or they get esophageal rupture or something like that from their vomiting. But I think that those with binge eating disorder probably don't have so many sort of acute problems that would necessitate admission to hospital. More people have binge eating disorder than the other ones, as I understand it. Um, but it doesn't have so many acute problems that might cause, you know, death within a few days or something like that. And that's mm. really what this is, this guideline is trying to prevent 
Mm-hmm. So is the guideline sort of like, I know you were saying at the start that you, you didn't um, kind of educate healthcare professionals on signs and symptoms but is it is it that sort of thing is it kind of the signs and symptoms to look out for and then kind of what to do thereafter or is it a different Um, approach again to be quite honest with you I can't remember but I don't I don't think it's not designed to be a textbook about eating disorders so if I remember rightly um it doesn't have a lot about the signs and symptoms to look out for to make the diagnosis. Um, Mm -hmm. It is really designed for non-eating disorder specialists to do proper assessments to assess physical risk for health. Um, Mm -hmm. But along with that, there's, you know, it's not just that. There's a whole chapter about um, refeeding and tube feeding and whole chapters about um, families and chapter about, um, what do you call it, consent treatment, um, Mm -hmm. sectioning and capacity and and all that. you know, it's it's a really, really comprehensive document. And then there's a whole new chapter about type one diabetes and eating disorders, which mm-hmm. there wasn't in the in the Marsman guidelines. Um, and then there's a whole chapter about where best patients should be treated, and chapter for commissioners. And you know, it's a it's a very comprehensive document, but it's not uh, a textbook about eating disorders should we say it's very specific in its um in its angle i suppose i suppose that sense of kind of being more specific and and not so much of a textbook is is quite a good referral tool if you're if you're in the moment and you need to use it rather than having Mm. this hefty textbook um to to Mm. kind of have something to refer to i think you Mm. know that's kind of the thing Mm. you need um Mm. so but if you don't mind, you, you... even this well, is quite yeah. <laughs> so still, um, uh... and I, I have to say, yeah. I keep making this point and drumming it home that you you need something that you know if you're um, working in your emergency department, you have somebody with um, anorexia who's potentially medically unstable you've got to decide what to do with them you've got to have something that you can just quickly go on to google find it print it off and use it you don't want to have to wade through a whole load of stuff to find the bit that you need you just haven't got time to do that that would put people off doing full assessments so um so it needs needed to be something that was very usable and i think it is as long as people know about it and know where to find the information that they need um which i think is probably a lot easier with this uh with mead than it was with marzipan i think Mm. yeah i think you're right completely i think um that was something that i did in my dissertation as well was to create a sort of handout to give to the pediatric nurses at the end and say you know here's the thing the main points that we've kind of wanted to highlight for you today and here's some kind of further referrals or further references to go to um should you need them um mm. but you mentioned just as you were talking about the guidelines you mentioned a few things that i'd just like to i guess pick up on um just in case you know people are wondering what it what it is or kind of how it appears um and the first one you mentioned was refeeding syndrome um so i just mm. wondered if you would mind kind of given a bit of an explanation of how that might show up in in someone with an eating disorder okay i'm no expert okay because i'm an emergency <laughs> doctor and not <laughs> not, not, yeah. a, not a, a medic that's ever fed anyone but but the basic the basic nuts and bolts of it are is that if you have really really restricted your feeding significantly for more than a couple of weeks so either having um well just having very very little nutrition in that time um 
your body goes into kind of starvation mode if if you suddenly are fed you know a norm of what would you say was a normal amount of calories but you're suddenly fed a lot that can cause a lot of um shifts in the electrolytes in your body so the uh, you know the different salts and things moving in and out of cells and then that can have further problems cause further problems mm-hmm. then um so when you start refeeding somebody who's had little or no nutrition for some time you have to do it quite cautiously however um what you know that the sort of old refeed the main refeeding guidelines not necessarily to do with eating disorders are about refeeding people who are severely malnourished for other reasons not necessarily from eating disorders uh but as i understand it people with uh anorexia are actually much less likely to get refeeding syndrome than somebody who's say really malnourished from crohn's disease or you know something else um so they're very clear in this guideline that yes you have to start cautiously but you have to build it up very quickly within a couple of day- mm-hmm. days they should be on full amount of food right um because i think what's happened in the past is that on medical wards the the sort of medical teams not really understanding it have been so worried about refeeding syndrome they've taken it so cautiously mm. that actually what you have then is underfeeding so so it's very important that people see those guidelines and look at them and think yeah well, we start at so many calories per kilogram per day but actually within you know 24 48 hours we need to be up to full thing because the the risk of refeeding syndrome isn't that high um for this particular case right okay well to say that you said you weren't an expert that was very helpful um so thank you (laughs) um and i think like you say it's really important for people to be aware of the fact that you know yes it it's a potential but equally you know if somebody does come in with an eating disorder that nutrition needs to go up fast and and not to not to be concerned you know doing the right thing um Mm. kind of you know to follow that guidance is the most important thing to make sure that Mm. they're getting enough nutrients for what they need and the other thing is that they're getting it early enough i mean i've had cases you know that i'd seen in a and e that i refer to the medics and one of them you know, they didn't get a dietitian to see her for two days. And I know that because she was still in A&E two days later. Um, and, you know, they they weren't feeding her. And I think it's really, really important for emergency clinicians, whether they're A&E or on medical wards, when they see, you know, low heart rate or derangements in their blood tests or something like that, the treatment for all of those things is food, is nutrition. Mm. You know, it's not necessarily giving them um, glucose through a drip or giving them, I mean, they might need to have potassium through a drip, but, you know, that not giving them drugs to speed up their heart rate, it's food. Food is the mm. thing that's going to reverse all those things that have caused them to come into hospital. So it's really important. Mm that um that food is started as soon as possible after admission really yeah yeah another thing i wanted to ask you about that you mentioned um because when i did my dissertation again this was something that the the pediatric nurses said they found really difficult to sort of understand um or to wrap their heads around because it it seemed like a really horrible thing to do for the patients um is ng tube feeding um and Mm. you just kind of said about you know food is the only kind of you know that's the thing to start with that's the medicine to start with um so is there sort of a a reason why somebody would need to go on to an ng tube would it be that you try and start them with food first or would you is it sometimes you have to go for the ng tube well it's always better to try with food first isn't it because that's Mm -hmm. you know that's what you're wanting them to do is to eat um and 
I mean, it's a kind of personal view, but I think um, it probably is backed up by evidence is that quite often once you start tube feeding, it's really difficult to stop and the person kind of just gets used to being tube fed and then it's really, really difficult for them to get rid of that and start eating again. That can be quite a long process. So it's always better to get people eating and drinking if you can. Um, but obviously if there is total refusing, refusal or they just can't do it, they just can't get enough in, um, you know, then you may need to have energy tube feeding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine sort of through eating disorder recovery, you know, one of the fears is that sitting down and having a meal. Um, and obviously, you know, at, at the start, if it's for medical stabilization, you want to do things, you want to get the ball rolling as quick as possible. But, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I can imagine kind of bringing somebody off a tube feed would be quite difficult to then get them to start eating solids because of that discomfort as well. I can imagine there's quite a lot of mm -hmm. gastrointestinal changes that would happen between the NG mm -hmm. tube compared to eating a meal. And I think, I mean, as I understand it, um, you know, having, having it through a tube um, helps with the guilt of eating because you're not feeding yourself somebody else is doing it to you that's how i understand yeah. it so it might be a relief to be tube fed for some people just like it can be a relief mm. to be sectioned because they can tell their eating disorder that they're not choosing to do it so it you know gets rid of some of that awful guilt that they feel which i think a lot of this mm. disorder is all around guilt um you know how i understand it um and so you know, being fed by a tube, while probably not particularly present, pleasant, uh, can be life-saving and very necessary, really. But I, I'm guessing that what happens is because it helps to um, diminish the guilt that one feels from eating, that it's really, really difficult to go back to eating again, mm. because then you'll get all that guilt back. And... Um, you know, so it's better not to get on a tube feed. And that's, again, why it's so important for the nursing staff or the um, healthcare assistants even to know how to sit with somebody and support them and mm. really, really help them to get that food in. Yeah. You know, yeah, just absolutely. like they do on eating disorder units, you know. And without that, yeah, if people are, are real enough that they need admitting to an, an acute um medical bed they're going to need a huge amount of support to get them to eat and they need that right sort mm. of support don't they yeah this is why it's so important for people to understand it i guess that leads me on to kind of another another question sorry to bombard you with <laughs> putting you on the spot um but i think this is i think this is something that's in um mead as well is you know, with that support would come supporting somebody with compensatory behaviors um so mm. you know i think that's one thing that may not be fully aware is you know someone might sit comfortably and eat their meal but it's you know what they're doing after um that's mm. the issue so do you kind of have any advice or from me what's the kind of guidance is there any guidance on supporting compensatory behaviors yeah well there, there is um a few paragraphs about compensatory behaviors um and i think it is just around making this the you know the general staff on the ward aware that they should probably be on bed rest and, you know, they shouldn't be going to the loo straight after or going to the bathroom rather straight after having a feed or having some food um, and that they should be checking that food isn't secreted around the, the place. Um, they should just be aware of these things. But, you know, in particular, I think the the pacing and the exercise side of it. And, you know, I think, I say, I haven't had an eating sort of, my understanding is that, you know, there's probably, when somebody is really doing that pacing or micro-exercising, they just can't make that choice to stop and they need someone mm. to tell them to stop. And so the staff, 
should be able to do that. <laughs> you know, they should know that they should do that and they should do that because sometimes that that's what it needs. Because, um, again, as I understand it, you know, they, they can't make that decision to stop themselves because they'll feel so guilty for it. Their anorexia or their eating disorders make them feel so guilty for it. But if somebody tells them that they have to stop, then they can kind of tell their eating disorder, well, I have to, I have to sit mm. still for the next hour, you know, and yeah. it kind of absolves them of some of that guilt. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I think if ward staff were aware of those things, then, you know, hopefully it will help uh, mm. to stop those behaviors. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I think mm. it's really important and it's, it's, just I think that all the little things that can be so supportive for somebody in those early stages of recovery um, that are really vital to sort of catch catch those signs. Mm. Um, and then I guess the last part that I just wanted to ask about, I think there's also a section on this in, in Mead, is almost, and you might have kind of something to say here yourself, but the obviously, you know, having a, a loved one admitted to a hospital um, is quite a terrifying thing to do and if you don't know anything about eating disorders I can imagine that is even scarier mm. um so I guess from from Mead um what is there some sort of kind of you know advice to parents or carers or, or loved ones in general in terms of you know what the best thing for somebody supporting somebody to do because I think it's very different we, we've spoken a lot on the podcast about supporting someone when you're at home with them actually if they're in a hospital, supporting them from afar, I can imagine, be quite challenging. Mm. Well, I think I've got a few things to say about this. I think when it very first happens, when, it, when you know, you're a new parent of a new person going in and it's their first admission and you're just terrified and you don't really know anything about it, you don't know what's happening, you kind of put your your child or your loved one in the hands of these professionals thinking, oh, at least they're in hospital now, they'll be looked after and everybody knows what they're doing, um, which obviously, of course, isn't always the case. So, you know, you, it's really important that people do understand it as professionals because these poor parents are kind of giving you their loved one and, and, and assuming that you, you know what to do. Um, but I don't think it takes that long for parents to start wising up and reading about anorexia, etc. Um, and I think then, you know, the parents kind of the ones that take over and almost telling the hospital staff what they should be doing. Um, and I think it can all become terrifying for parents because they, as I say, they quickly get to know a lot about um, anorexia and other eating disorders. Um, and it's really frightening then every time they go to hospital because it's really potluck whether you get a doctor or a nurse or, you know, any clinician that actually understands it and is going to take it seriously. Um, so I think need is that thing that helps the carers with that. And, you know, I always say to people, just take a copy of the, when, when it was marzipan, you need to go to A&E, just take a copy of the marzipan checklist with you because if the doctor or the nurses know nothing about eating disorders, you can show them this and say, this is what you should be doing. And they might learn something and, you know, hopefully they'll take that on board and um, do the correct assessment. Um, so I think Mead is really important for that reason and also for referring, you know, for the emergency medicine doctor, referring to medics or paediatricians who also might not really understand the gravity of the situation. Um, but in the Mead guideline, there is a whole section for parents and carers. There's a whole section um, about confidentiality as well, which gives lots mm. of different scenarios. You know, if you've got an 18 year old or a 17 year old and they're on this section or that section and they're, they're refusing or whatever for the parent to be given information there's all the scenarios about what you can and can't say and and talk to the parent parents about which i think is really important because there's nothing worse i think than being a parent with your child in hospital and 
they say that you're not allowed to know anything. I mean, that's just absolutely awful. It's awful. So mm -hmm. this kind of talks a bit about that. Um, and then the other thing that is really, really good about the Mead guidelines is that in one of the, I can't remember if it's an annex or an appendix, can't remember, but there's a whole load of summary sheets at the end. Um, so there's a summary sheet for dietitians, there's a summary sheet for nurses, there's a summary sheet for emergency physicians, you know, all these summary sheets, because it's such a long document that the important thing for the different groups are put on a summary sheet. So you've got something to quickly refer to and it kind of signposts you to the particular part of the guideline that you need. There is a summary sheet for carers. And mm. I personally think that all carers should print that off and just have it available to them. Just have it there, because what what that does is it um, it tells you all the, the all of the things that might be happening um, that would suggest that you should be taking them into hospital. Really, the things that might suggest that um, that the person is becoming medically unstable. Um, so, uh, so that's a really useful sort of checklist for you to think of if you're thinking, oh, should we be taking her to A&E or not? I'm not quite sure. It tells you if you should, if any of those particular mm -hmm. things are happening. Um, and it also, also signposts you to, which you, most of you listening would probably know about anyway, about BEAT and, you know, uh, various organisations, but to a new person, you know, they're not maybe going to know about those mm. organizations so um so they're quite quite good i mean the other thing that just occurred to me and hadn't occurred to me before is if you know pediatric and uh medical gastro wards they would normally go to had a load of those printed off so if somebody goes in with a new diagnosis they can hand that to the parents mm -hmm. even better um yeah so yeah so there there is a fair bit in there for, for carers yeah 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 i think like you say having those resources accessible to give to people um is is so important because i think it can feel like a really daunting and, and scary you know nobody wants to have a child have an eating disorder um frozen. and you know to not know anything about it would be would be really, you know, terrifying. So to have those resources, I think, is essential. Um, well, mm -hmm. thank you so much, Vicky. I have learned so much from you, and it's been fantastic oh. <laughs> to kind of get all your experience and all your knowledge. Um, so yeah, I'm sure people will be really grateful for this this information. So thank you. Good. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for inviting me. <laughs> If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support, or talk to someone you trust.